Welcome to One More Time. I am Sean Smith. The family tree of the modern wind band traces its origin to military bands, and the true source of all bands might be considered the French Republican Guard Band, which was founded in 1848. Regional preferences and time would find the band evolving to where it is today. Even though bands are prevalent around the world, the only true professional bands in many countries are the military bands. It is also a side of bands that very few of us ever see up close. We often will see these bands perform at Midwest and other conferences, maybe at a concert at the Marine Corps barracks or when they're on tour, but we miss a lot of what goes on into being a military bands person. On this episode, we will focus on military bands from Sousa to today. The producer of this episode is Stephen Cohn, and he will take it from here. Sousa always kept himself busy, and that was no different during World War I. Today, among other stories, Scott Schwartz, the director of the Sousa Archive and Center for American Music, will tell us about Sousa's time as director of the Great Lakes Navy Band during the First World War. War and the Sousa Band, well, clearly we have several Sousa Bands. We have the Marine Band, um, they served in between 1880 and 1892. Of course, for the most part, there were some wars, no world wars at that point. Then we have a civilian band um, from basically 1892 to 1932. But there was a break during those years, during World War I, when um, Sousa's civilian ban ceases to exist for a short period of time after America enters the war. So um, why don't we talk about the Great Lakes Naval Band and Sousa's involvement? Who's who in this band? Who's the, uh, the big shots, the big ones? Well, that's a good question. I mean, um, with the outbreak of World War I in 1914, you know, President Woodrow Wilson and most of the country embraced basically a, a national policy of neutrality. Why get involved with Europe's problems? Let's sit back and let them squabble and we'll just happily move along. Well, I don't think Mr. Sousa was particularly happy with that um, approach, but... Um, being a man who was far more interested in raising money with his civilian band, he was not opposed to letting the country take the back seat as Europe um, fights. When America does get involved um, with um, the war effort um, several years later, Sousa's um, civilian band steps up to the plate and takes the call to join the military. Now, this created several unique problems for Mr. Sousa. Um, one, a portion of his civilian band is requested leave to join the war effort. And Mr. Sousa himself, having been in the Marine Band, not sure what he could do, decided that he would approach the Marines again and ask if there was something that he could do to um, help with America's war effort. In the Marines, well, they, let me back up. Mr. Sousa was 62 when America declares war on Germany. And the Marines basically said, Mr. Sousa, thank you. We would love to have you um, do something for us, but you should really let the young boys take responsibility for this and sit back and relax. Of which Mr. Sousa, of course, did not respond well to. Nothing worse than being told, you're old, 
So Mr. Souza then approached the army and um, asked again, what could he do to serve them? And the army, just like the Marines, said, thank you, Mr. Souza, but no, you're a little too old for our operation. Um, you should sit in the rocking chair and let the young boys do what they do best. Now, Mr. Souza was quite frustrated. A, a colleague of his, um, a John Aldrin Carpenter, who was a composer friend of his, basically said the Great Lakes Naval Battalion Station had an undeveloped band and it needed a master hand to help start it, right the boat, you might say, for that military organization. And he was asked to come to Chicago to talk with the commander of that military band. And so he took a train and went out to Chicago. And the military did offer him a position as commander, lieutenant commander in charge of music for that military band. And of course, at this point, he telegraphs his wife as he's taking a train back to New York to let her know that his intention was to join the Navy to serve as its commander of music. Of course, one of his responsibilities was to train musicians. One of the first things he did as commander of the Great Lakes Band was to start a recruitment campaign for musicians to serve not only the Navy Band, but the Army Band. Mind you, the same army that said he was too old. May 20th is the day he joins the Navy Band. And by the end of June... He had 6,000 enlistments specifically for the Great Lakes Band. And from this large group of enlistees, Sousa formed the 1st Battalion Band, consisting of 350 trained musicians. That's quite stunning because his civilian band, when he was touring, averaged in size between 45 and 65 players. So this was a grand band. One of the problems with um, America's involvement with the war was that it suddenly realized that its commitment to the war effort required expenditures of money that they did not have. In fact, they were so ill-funded to support this effort that the U.S. Treasury requested Congress to pass the Emergency Loan Act on April 24 of 1917, and basically issuing $5 million in bonds to support this effort. And then William McAdoo, Secretary of the Treasury, basically said, we need to have some bond drives. Now, the first bond drive, Sousa was not involved with. The bond drive did not raise as much money as McAdoo had hoped. And so he approached Mr. Souza and said, could the Great Lakes Navy Band help us with these Liberty Bond Drives? And Mr. Souza said yes. By the third bond drive, which began April 15, 1918, Souza raised $3 billion dollars. And the fourth drive 
that ended September 28, 1918, $6 billion in bonds. Now, mind you, this is money that the Great Lakes Navy Band helps the U.S. raise. That's extraordinary. And, you know, the question is, well, how the devil did they do it? Well, Mr. Sousa had an interesting campaign, um, and his, his marketing folks... Um, worked up a, an arrangement that the Great Lakes Band would play a particular tune, let's say Maryland by Maryland, and if your corporation wanted the Great Lakes Band to play that tune for a concert under Sousa's baton, they would provide $50,000. Mind you, Maryland by Maryland is not a Sousa tune, it's just a tune played by the Navy Band Sousa conducting. For Sousa marches, the pay to get the Navy band to play that tune was significantly higher. So you think about it, you want one tune, four minutes worth of music, tops $50,000. Oh, for a significant Sousa march, why not $200,000? Another story about Mr. Sousa and his fundraising efforts, and this is growing out of largely a couple of Navy cadets, Mr. Souza always conducts with a baton. How about we buy a couple boxes of 50-cent batons and have Mr. Souza pick one up and conduct part of a tune and then turn to the audience and offer up the baton as an auction item. And say, who will give me X number of dollars for Mr. Souza's baton? And the story goes, someone would shout out in the audience, a hundred dollars, and the auctioneer would say, get real. Well, maybe they wouldn't say get real, but essentially, it's much more than that. So literally, by the time an auction of one Sousa baton was done, they could raise one $2,000 for essentially a 50-cent baton that Mr. Sousa picked up and used once. A great marketing strategy. And from that, um, many tunes um, were created, and the band traveled extensively, playing for communities, raising spirit, and by raising spirit, raising money. For this edition of Two Minute Rehearsal Techniques, we have the 27th director of the United States Marine Band, Michael Colburn. Colburn served from 1987 until 2014. Well, one of my favorite techniques is uh, hardly original. I would not claim credit for inventing this, but it's one that I have found to be very, very useful, especially in working with student groups. And that is to have the instrumentalists uh, put their horns down, their instruments down, and sing through various passages of the music. Um, I find this is so helpful, um, uh, especially for rhythmic issues, but uh, also for phrasing, um, I was doing this the other day with uh, our, our brass players. Our horn players had a really high exposed passage in the Candide Suite, and we're getting kind of uptight about their, their high notes. And so having them sing through this passage to really just kind of uh, uh, hear these notes in their mind's ear first before trying to play them on their instruments uh, it was incredibly helpful. And as I said, with rhythmic uh, passages as well, intricate rhythmic passages where oftentimes the, the, the mechanics of playing our instruments can get in the way, um, singing through those passages uh, so that the players can really get a sense of how their rhythms fit together. Uh, of course, taking care that they're, in addition to singing, that they're listening, 
And then putting them back on the instruments can be very helpful as well. Um, I will often extend that to, if we're working with brass players in particular, to have them sing the passage, then have them buzz it on their mouthpiece, um, you know, getting a, a reference pitch to make sure that they're buzzing in the, in the right uh, notes. But that singing, buzzing, and then playing is such a, a helpful connection to make. Uh, I know as a player myself, too, that was really critical in my development my sense of tone and phrasing. And so I like to do that with brass players, even in an ensemble setting. So that really is uh, one of my favorite band techniques. Any telling of a story about the United States military would not be complete without the country's military bands and ensembles. Today, we will be taking a look at some of those groups, hearing from U.S. Fleet Bandmaster Lieutenant Kelly Cartwright and from the United States Marine Band's president's own, Colonel Jason Fettig. My name is Colonel Jason Fettig. I am the director of the President's Own United States Marine Band. I took a little bit of an unusual path. There are, are some folks that we have here in the band who have known about the band for their entire musical lives and, and aspired to be a part of, of a military band, and specifically in some cases the Marine Band. For me, I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do. I, I studied music uh, at the University of Massachusetts. I was a clarinet player, and I studied both performance and education, because I was equally interested in teaching and in playing. Uh, I had certainly heard about the President's Own and knew how prestigious it was, but I had no idea that I would be remotely qualified to be a part of an organization like this. When I auditioned for the band, it was a little bit on a whim. It was more just out of curiosity about how competitive I might be rather than a serious pursuit of starting a career in, in the military. So when I won the audition, I was probably as surprised as anybody. So when the opportunity came three years into my career here to actually audition internally to be one of the, uh, the assistant directors on the conducting staff here, again, I took that opportunity just because it was afforded to me. And I thought, what have I got to lose? And it would be a wonderful experience to just go through that process. And I was so very fortunate to be selected at the end of that process as well. And that set me on my path. Commanding military bands is really unique in many ways, and it's different than the way that, uh, like civilian organizations, are structured, like professional orchestras in this country. You know, a lot of orchestras have management that's divided between the music directorship and the administrative directorship. They have artistic directors and executive directors, and of course, music directors. Uh, but military bands and those like the President's Own, the band that I command, uh, all of those jobs are kind of put into one in the commander. And so I'm responsible for all of the artistic planning of the organization, um, responsible for the general management of the administrative and operation of the organization, and then, of course, responsible for conducting the organization as well. So my day is often divided into uh, attending to each of those responsibilities. Uh, conduct the band and our chamber orchestra uh, across the D.C. region, throughout our national concert tours, and at the White House on a regular basis in support of our mission to support the President of the United States musically. And I also uh, am always thinking about um, the uh, forward planning of the organization. What are we going to do in the coming years as far as our local performances, initiatives like commissions, and uh, inviting guest artists to work with our musicians, and then the overall management of the organization is the third part of that. As a, as a commanding officer, I'm responsible for all 154 of my active duty Marines, making sure that hey, they have professional uh, education opportunities, uh, that they are taken care of, uh, not only in their professional development, but also personally as well. 
So my average day is just like any other office day. I come into work uh, anywhere between 6.30 and 7 o'clock in the morning, uh, and I'm here till about uh, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I spend the whole day in the office doing all of my administrative work and being accessible as the commander of this unit to anybody who may need to talk to me or decisions that may need to be made. Uh, and in between those office hours that I have every day, that is when I run rehearsals and performances. Um, the work of the Marines in the President's Zone is very much, uh, for, for someone like me, it's, it's very much a nine to five job as well as a job that takes place on weekends and evenings and holidays, all the major times when we would have our public performances and the support that we uh, give to the White House on a regular basis. One of the things that makes it possible to lead an organization as complex and historic as this one is to have such a talented staff. Uh, which includes not only the musicians that uh, are the backbone of our performance capabilities across the board, but yes, a very large professional staff who are 100% dedicated to um, supporting the organization in their professional capacities. And we're also an active archive because the band is more than two centuries old and we have uh, very well-known um, professionals in our history like John Philip Sousa, who was the uh, director of the band from 1880 to 1892. Um, we have researchers and uh, academics all over the world who get in touch with us um, to uh, do their own research and use us as a resource. The day of the average musician is very erratic. Uh, our mission is centered around our performances, of which we have more than a thousand commitments a year uh, spread across the entire organization. And so uh, when our, our folks are not in rehearsal or in performance, then they are preparing for those performances. So we often have performances back to back to back or simultaneous. Uh, our musicians are preparing for multiple things at any given time, whether it be ceremonies or concerts. Uh, or other projects that they may be working on in addition to their primary musical responsibilities. And so the life of a musician in the Marine Band is very much that nights and weekends and holidays and some days are, are exceptionally long. You know, when we're in inaugural season and we're preparing for a presidential inauguration, we may have people report at two o'clock in the morning, uh, be engaged the entire next day and not go home until late the next night. That's an extreme situation, but it's not entirely uncommon to have extremely long days with multiple commitments and in other days where there is time to spend the majority of the day preparing and practicing for the next commitment. The main thing for an organization such as ours is to be on call all the time. We are available at the, for the service of the President of the United States uh, and the Marine Corps 365 days a year. So that means anytime we need to perform, we are ready to go with some sort of ensemble. And in fact, all of our musicians are even literally on call every day. If they don't have a scheduled commitment uh, and they're home practicing and preparing um, up to a certain time each day, we could give them a call if something came in that we needed to support at the very last minute. And so this is, this is one of the hallmarks of this organization is to be able to provide any music that may be needed for the Marine Corps for the president at any time. For something like a presidential inauguration, which is at the, the center of our presidential support, 
we, it's, it's an all hands on deck situation. We have 154 members of this organization, both active performing musicians and our support staff, and everybody would be available for an inauguration. We've been providing music for the presidential inauguration, uh, we think, since for every president since Thomas Jefferson. So this is a big deal for us. And um, we have uh, the day starts out very early. Uh, where we uh, are out on the presidential dais, uh, where the band that prov provides the music for the actual swearing-in ceremony, and that's about an 80-piece band that is down there below the presidential dais. And the reason for such a large band is not only are we performing outside for a very large crowd, but it's usually pretty cold as well. And since we play everything live whenever possible, uh, sometimes instruments freeze. And so by having redundant instruments out there, we give ourselves the best chance to, to continue to play that music. Then we move from the presidential uh, swearing in ceremony to the uh, inaugural parade. And we provide a 99 piece band for the inaugural parade. Uh, and uh, once we've marched down Pennsylvania Avenue and we've gotten past the presidential reviewing stand, then we split into smaller ensembles and we get on different buses and we move out to the various inaugural balls that are performed uh, throughout the evening. The next day after the inaugural balls, we typically support a uh, presidential um, prayer service at the National Cathedral with another ensemble. So the entire evolution, including all of the rehearsals leading up to inauguration, for inauguration, is about a week long, and the actual performances, those four parts of the performance, can span the course of about 36 hours from start to finish. The Marine Band, as you might imagine, throughout our history and given our mission, is a lot of different things to a lot of different people. We have a lot of different types of audiences, from the Commandant of the Marine Corps and some of our most distinguished military officials in the Marine Corps, to the President of the United States and his guests and dignitaries from around the world who may visit the White House, to our veterans and our active duty service members who... Uh, see the Marine Corps as a representation of their service and their pride in their country, to music students across the country and educators and professional musicians who see the Marine Band as one of the finest concert bands, professional concert bands in the entire world. So you might imagine that programming can be very difficult. In fact, it's one of the most challenging things that I do as director of the band, but it's also one of the most rewarding because I have a chance to program to each of these audiences and wherever possible build musical bridges between the different audiences. This is never more apparent for me than we go uh, when we go on our national concert tour every year. We've been touring as a band uh, since 1891. John Philip Sousa took the band on its very first concert tour in 1891 and it started a tradition that we've upheld to this day. It's one of the most important ways to get live music out to people all across the country, many of whom may never have a chance to come to Washington, D.C. and experience the presidency or experience the Marine Band here uh, in our hometown. But when, I, when we go out on the road, the music I choose is very important because we have all of these different people in those audiences from town to town, and we play from uh, play in small venues in rural America to large uh, major concert halls in major cities. Uh, and one of the things that's important to me and has been during my directorship is to make sure that the programs I create have a little bit of something for everybody 
and uh, bring something new to everybody as well. I don't really want to play a different program in Carnegie Hall than I play in a middle school gymnasium in rural Nebraska. I'd love to create a program that, that brings all of this music together in a way that will make everyone feel like there was something there for them. Whether you're uh, affiliated with the military or not, sometimes the music that we choose can help build those connections between military personnel and, and civilians and, and um, citizens who support the military. And when you get the, the temperature just right on selecting just the right kind of music and the right balance of music, you feel that in the room. You have these performances where you feel these folks from different backgrounds coming together for those two hours. And in many ways, that can be one of the most satisfying musical experiences that we have here in the Marine Band. Don't pass up opportunities as they're uh, presented to you. I think a lot of times self-doubt and fear of failure can lead us to not pursue things. Um, and, and if I had done that, if I had hesitated or, or felt like I'm not qualified for this, of course I wouldn't be here. So that was a really important lesson for me to experience that I just needed to take that step and just see where the chips were gonna fall. Now I needed to be prepared for that moment and I, and I needed to do a lot of hard work to be the best player I could be, but I also needed to take advantage of that opportunity when it presented itself, not only to get into this organization, but then also to put myself on the path to, to lead it. But to understand the power of a Marine band, you need to hear one more story. Kelly Cartwright. I'm the Fleet Bandmaster of the Pacific Fleet Band at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Our Navy Fleet Bands annually support humanitarian assistance disaster relief missions. But in 2011, when I was the Assistant Director of the U.S. Fleet Forces Band in Norfolk, I led the group on Continuing Promise, which went to the Caribbean Basin and Central and South America. Uh, our last mission stop was in Haiti, and uh, we were there about 19 months after the uh, 2010 earthquake. There were tent cities everywhere, but for as much devastation as we witnessed, we also saw equal parts hope from everyday people there. Uh, we were scheduled to perform at a hospital for orphans run by an older and, I would say, very tenacious American nun. Um, and she had us play for two different groups of children that day in the central courtyards in each wing of the hospital. So we finished our first one, and... We're moving over to the second one, getting set up, and the children are starting to come into the second courtyard, and the nun pulled me aside, and she pointed out uh, a little boy in the corner with a, he had a hospital gown and an oxygen tank, and uh, she asked me if we could do something to make his day because he had end-stage HIV. And it was like a punch of reality that got, I mean, I could feel my eyes well up with tears, and you know, stopped for a second, regrouped myself, and I went back over and I told the band, uh, which for this particular performance, it was a, a New Orleans-style brass band. Um, but our drummer had a shtick he would do with the kids where um, they would play along with him on his snare drum. And so we did this during the concert, and the little boy was all smiles when he was chosen to play along with the drummer. Um, and then afterwards, all of the staff members came up to us with tears in their eyes and you know, just thanking us for bringing joy to this boy who they said at this point was in pretty much constant agony. Um, and I think it just it speaks why we do what we do. Uh, music brings people together. Uh, that one small act obviously didn't change the world, and, and maybe this sounds a little idealistic, but I'm hopeful that our contributions to the effort will help bring us all together over time.
now we have some announcements about Illinois bands. It might be the summer, but Illinois bands are still harder work. There will be summer band concerts on Thursday, June 21st and Thursday, July 19th from 7 until 8 p.m. A reminder that Illinois Bands now live streams all of its concerts. You can watch these live streams by liking us on Facebook and watching there, or by going to the Illinois Bands website at bands.illinois.edu. The stream will appear on our front page just before the concert begins. Please remember that all the times given are in Central Standard Time. The Marching Illini are also preparing for the upcoming football season, working during the summer at monthly sectionals to work on marching techniques and musicality. Now it's time for our segment titled Source Material. During this monthly segment, we will ask a composer to discuss and break down a selected piece of music. This month, we are joined by composer Viet Kwong. Kwong recently entered the Artist Diploma Program at the Curtis Institute of Music, where he studies with David Ludwig and holds the Daniel W. Dietrich II Composition Fellowship. He will be discussing his piece for wins, Diamond Tide. You can also get a look at the music on our podcast webpage, as well as a full recording of the work. Diamond Tide was commissioned by um, Texas Region 18 Middle School Bands, and the consortium was headed by Cheryl Floyd. And the piece came about really just, uh, I got an email from Cheryl, and she said she was interested in a middle school piece from me. Um, I had never written a piece of an, for an easier grade level uh, before. I only have two other pieces, and they're a bit more difficult. I say a bit, they're much more difficult. Um, so it was a fun uh, thing I've always wanted to do because I grew up playing in the band world and went through middle school band and everything, and I remember always wanting to play fun music, and I wanted to write a piece that would be fun for everyone. Yeah, so the title Diamond Tide um, comes from this article that I read where a scientific in the scientific journal where scientists were able to like successfully melt a diamond. So basically, to melt a diamond, it's not just about getting it hot enough. Because when you just get make a diamond hot, it just turns into charcoal. It's not as beautiful of an idea, right? Charcoal tide. So to get a diamond to melt, you have to have extreme temperature and pressure. And scientists think that on planets in the solar system far away from Earth, there could it could be possible to have oceans or pools of liquid diamond. And when they melted a diamond, they also saw that there were, like, little shards of solid diamond floating within it. So you could think of, like, icebergs, but, like, diamonds in planets far away. So the idea of, like, oceans of liquid diamond was, like, so kind of, like, a beautiful idea to me. And kind of creating this sound world that evokes, like, space and kind of, like, a fanciful world for the music to live in. I... I thought it would just be a great idea. And I think the students who did the premiere really were able to connect with that and kind of use their imagination to imagine it for themselves. So, so Diamond Tide is in two movements. Um, the first movement's a slow, moderato tempo. And it all started from the idea of this melting diamond sort of concept for the piece. So a lot of metallic uh, percussion and... Not just metallic percussion, but metallic percussion that is like melting by submerging crotales in water. And so when you hit a crotale and you submerge it in water, the pitch bends down about a whole step. So the whole idea of the piece started from these crotales that, basically three crotales that um, are submerged. So like a D down to a C and then a G down to an F and then a C down to a B flat. 
and it creates this melody. Um, so right from measure one, you hear the Kratali submerge. And in measure three, it's the other component to it, is this trumpet swell. And eventually, over the course of maybe the first like 29 measures, the trumpet swell transforms from a quarter note. And then measure 12, it becomes a half note. And then by measure 21, it's a dotted half note. And then, so basically by measure 30, the Kratali motive turns into the French horn line and then the trumpet is connected to it. So it creates this melody by measure 30. And all, there are all these uh, triplets and eighth notes happening in the clarinets and saxophones and eventually the flutes. And those are just supposed to create a rippling, colorful texture across the ensemble. They don't have to be exactly in time. Especially when it's the eighth notes against triplets, they don't have to be um, perfectly cross-rhythmed. builds up to this big climax um, at measure 40 and the trumpets finally get the melody and the French horns have a kind of a counterline to it. Fifty-four. It's uh, kind of a postlude with the ideas from the whole movement. The whole movement is basically one idea that's like transformed and stretched across a couple minutes. Um, and then there's a nice Cortale solo in measure seventy-one to round out the movement. And then moving to movement two, I still wanted to use more water percussion, but and the idea of like melting. And I'd written a piece for a percussion quartet in Brooklyn, New York, uh, called So Percussion, where I had them play Crystal Glasses. And So Percussion is a professional percussion quartet, but I didn't see any reason why uh, middle school or high school or even college students couldn't do it themselves. So it starts off with this C minor triad in the crystal glasses that when you bend when you tilt the crystal glass the pitch bends down so the whole mo whole movement is kind of based on this idea of a c minor triad turning into a b minor triad and then eventually back up to it
one thing I do want to point out in this piece is all of these quote-unquote fast notes in the piece are always chromatic scales. So they're, they might sound like difficult runs, but as long as the students know their chromatic scale, it shouldn't be too difficult. And then finally at 67, we get this fun little melody uh, from flute or clarinet solos, which don't have to be played as solos, but um, I like when they're solos because they kind of sound... I think a lot of times a group will have a really great flutist, a really great clarinetist that would love to play a solo. Um, and it all builds up to, in this first section, it's like a movement to measure 83, and the trumpets come in with kind of a fragment of the melody. Eventually, around measure, or at measure uh, 99, we have the melody in full with the... Uh, a fuller texture. One thing I really enjoyed in this movement was having this melody that's da 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 um, in 6 8, but then by the time 112 comes, it's kind of turned into a 3 4 melody. And at 116, we basically have 6 8 and 3 4 happening at the same time, but now we hear the melody in a much more raucous way in 3 4. And similar sort of clouds of sound with the chromatic scales. And at 138, it harkens back to the first movement. It's the same triplet idea from the first movement, but it's a quarter notes with the clarinets. Um, and we have the melody in the euphonium and bassoon. Um, and the Krutalis make one more entrance at 154 with these more chromatic scales and the flutes. Um, eventually, it all builds up to this big climax at 182, where um, the melody comes back in in the trumpets and at 196 the melody from the first movement is, com is overlaid with this melody from the second movement um, in a very exciting finish it starts like a coda basically and Chianti is basically my idea of like the pressure building and building and building until the diamond is melted Thank you for joining us on today's episode. Also, if you have made it this far, we have one more favor to ask of you. If you are getting this through iTunes, please rate the podcast. If you are grabbing this through the website, please like the post. And since you'll be on those sites doing that, if you could leave us a comment, we would really appreciate it. If you like this episode, you can also spread the word by sharing this through Facebook. Your help will go a long way in getting more people to listen and enjoy this podcast.
please consider following us on iTunes to make sure you don't miss anything if you enjoyed today's show. If you want to stay current with Illinois bands between episodes, follow us on Facebook or join us on Instagram at Illinois underscore bands. Find us on Twitter at Illinois bands. And of course, watch us on Snapchat at Illinois underscore bands. You can always check out our website for more information, www.bands.illinois.edu. The executive producer and host of today's show is Sean Smith. And the staff of the podcast includes co-host and occasional producer Daniel Dresser, co-host and producer Stephen Cohn, Christian Arkin, and Mary Allison Mahachik, who is also our script supervisor. The mixing of this episode and recording of segments is done by Sam Litt and Zia Fox. Of course, none of this would be possible without the Illinois Bands faculty, Stephen Peterson, Director of Bands, Linda Morehouse, Senior Associate Director of Bands, Beth Peterson, Associate Director of Bands, and Barry Hauser, Associate Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands. Illinois Bands is part of the School of Music at the University of Illinois and the College of Fine and Applied Arts. We would like to thank Dr. Beth Peterson, Scott Schwartz, Michael Colburn, Viet Kwong, Lieutenant Kelly Cartwright, Gene Horner, and Colonel Jason Fettig for their contributions to this episode. We hope you'll join us next month on One More Time.